Recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, and this is Chris DeGillion Talk Show. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Tonight is um, Friday, March 9th, 2012. We'll be discussing 1 Peter chapter 2, second in this series. Discussing the first chapter of 1 Peter, we saw that Peter was indeed addressing the uncircumcision, who were Israelites of the old kingdom that were dispersed in ancient times which Peter by this time had fully understood, and it's obvious from this epistle, and we'll be pointing that out several times this evening. Even though Peter did not understand it at the time of the events which were described in Acts chapter 10, which actually occurred some years before the writing of this epistle. We also saw last week how Peter directly connected the Old Testament and the New Testament, where he wrote of things such as the foreknowledge of Father Yahweh and the sanctification of the Spirit in obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ, which we see in the opening lines of this epistle. Many universalists take the famous vision of Peter found in Acts chapter 10, and insist upon applying it to everyone on the face of the earth. Although some numbskulls instead would insist that it applies to the eating of ham sandwiches. The primary key to understanding what Yahweh intended in his vision to Peter is in Acts 10.15, where it is recorded that Yahweh says to Peter, the things which God has cleansed, you do not deem profane. Yahweh told us in the Old Testament precisely what it was that he would cleanse. Any imagining of man as to what the object of the cleansing could be, which does not explicitly come from Scripture, is a false gospel. Among many other promises of that cleansing and its pertinence to Israel alone, we have these from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel. To witnesses. Jeremiah 33.8, and I will cleanse them, speaking to the children of Israel, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25, again speaking to the children of Israel, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? That's only two witnesses of many. What has Yahweh cleansed? Yahweh has cleansed Israel. He's cleansed all of Israel, and he's cleansed Israel only. For there is no promise of a cleansing to anyone else anywhere in the context of the Scriptures. And if only Israel had the promise, then only Israel received the cleansing. It's real simple. This carries all the way through to the end of the Bible at the Revelation, where we see the following at Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. 
and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Who shall Yahshua be taught himself to but Israel? From Hosea chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. And I will give her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt, speaking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is personified here as a she, as the bride of God, the wife of God. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt no more call me Bali, or my Lord. For I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name, and in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever, speaking to the children of Israel and nobody else. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. From Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 12. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then describing this city, John says, it had a wall great and high and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The children of Israel alone are the bride of Christ. The children of Israel alone had the promises of cleansing. The children of Israel, from which the white race of today has, for the most part, descended, are those whom Peter references in 1 Peter 1.3, where he says, that according to his great mercy, he has engendered us from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. In his first epistle, the Apostle John describes the children of God whose seed is in them as being born from of God, in contrast to the Antichrists and all of the enemies of God who were born from of the world. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, Yahshua Christ tells us that unless a man should be born from above. He is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. The children of Israel are the bride of Yahweh. The children of Israel are the allegorical city descended from heaven. They are born from above, described in the Revelation. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, the promises and the covenants for the children of Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh, and not some spiritual kinsmen according to man. Paul's concern in Judea were for his kinsmen, the remnant of Israel, 
and Paul's mission to the nations were for his kinsmen, the dispersed of Israel. Peter also came to that understanding, and he addresses this epistle to the elect sojourners of the dispersion in those places where Paul had formally established Christian assemblies for dispersed Israelites. 1 Chronicles 29.15 For we are strangers before thee and sojourners, as were all our fathers on the days of the earth. I'm, I'm sorry, our days on the earth there is a shadow, and there is none abiding. In verse 19 of this first chapter, Peter tells us that his readers... His readers, he tells his readers that they have been redeemed from out of their vain conduct handed down by their fathers. Where again, he is seen to have been speaking only to Israelites of the ancient dispersions, for the words could not apply to anyone else, and neither could they apply to the remnant of Israel among the Judeans who kept the law and the prophets. Referring again to that same cleansing, which the cross of Christ granted to the children of Israel, Peter ends his first chapter in this manner. From verse 22, Your souls, having been purified in the obedience of truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly, being engendered from above, not from corruptible, parentage, not from mixed race, not from those born of the world, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh who lives and abides. Since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory is a flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower falls off, but that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Now this is that which is spoken, which is announced to you. Here Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And it would be fitting to read the entire passage to see the context and to understand what Peter is calling attention to. I'll read from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 9. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is the forewarning of John the Baptist announcing the coming of Yahweh as Yahshua to Christ. Verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. 
O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The direct connections between the words of Isaiah, which were intended only for the children of Israel, and the, the epistle of Peter intended for those same people, cannot be justly ignored or modified. The situation continues throughout Peter's epistle. Where we will commence with chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting off all malice and all guile, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, as a newborn infant, you must yearn for the pure rational milk, in order that by it you would grow into preservation. If you taste that the prince or the Lord is benevolent. The milk, not even the meat, is enough to preserve us if indeed we obeyed it. To understand what Peter considered to be the milk of the gospel, we must simply observe what Peter has told his readers thus far and what he is about to tell them. To this point, in a nutshell, Peter has explained to his readers that they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And for that reason, they should abandon the folly of paganism and the disobedience to God, which had gotten their fathers into trouble in the first place. However, in Christ, they have mercy, and their lives are spared in that mercy. Such is the common faith, which all Israel should share, that the promises of redemption made to the fathers were indeed fulfilled on the cross of Christ. While Peter does not in this epistle explain how that was achieved, a sufficient explanation of that is indeed found in the books of the prophets and in the letters of Paul. Peter tells his intended readers that their souls having been purified in the obedience of the truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly. They, being the children of the same fathers, of course, as Peter explained in the first chapter in verse 18, then their brotherly love can only be applied to their ethnic kinsmen. For that is the context of the epistle, as is clear later in this same chapter where Peter evokes Exodus chapter 19 in 1 Peter 2.9, calling his intended readers an elect race, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. And, as we see, this message is only the milk of the gospel, yet we have a problem understanding that because we do not know our history. Paul defines the meat of the gospel in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For even you are obliged to be teachers because of the time. Again, you have need of one to teach you from the beginning the many elements of the oracles of Yahweh. He's telling them they should have been teachers, but obviously they, they need to be taught themselves. And having, have come having need of milk, not of solid food. For any who are partaking of milk are inexperienced of the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who through habit have the senses exercised for distinguishing both good and evil. Once we understand the milk of the gospel, which is the purpose of the Christ and his redemption of the descendants of cast-off Israel, 
Only then can we truly understand the meat, what is evil, and the nature of evil. While most people can see something as good or as bad, according to the judgment of man, the true biblical identification of evil goes far beyond the simple categorization of singular acts. 1 Peter 2, 4. Coming forth to him, a living stone, indeed, having been rejected as unfit by men, but honored elect before Yahweh. And yourselves as living stones are built a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ. Wherefore, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I place in Zion an honored elect cornerstone, and he believing in him shall by no means be ashamed. While the language of verse 4 is a little difficult, Peter tells us that Christ himself is a living stone rejected by men, but honored by God, and that we come forth to him. If indeed we go forth to him and he accepts us, if perhaps we are of his people Israel, then he honors us. The honor of man is temporary and short-lived, but the honor of God is forever. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, and I will quote from verse 28, But we know that to those who love Yahweh, all things work together for good. To those who in accordance with purpose, who in accordance with purpose, with God's purpose stated in the Old Testament, are called because, and here Paul gives that purpose, those whom he has known beforehand, Amos 3.2, speaking to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So he only foreknew the children of Israel, evidently. Because those whom he has known beforehand, he has also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, to those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls. Nobody else can claim to be called. And those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy. Nobody else can be claimed to be called by God. While those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. Then in verse 5, Peter draws a picture, much like the pictures of the body of Christ, that Paul also often drew in words. But here Peter uses stones in a building as an analogy. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Christ is recorded as having said to Peter, and I say to you that you are a stone. The word is petros. It means a stone in Greek. Yet upon this bedrock, the word is petra. There's a huge difference. It means a shelf or a ledge of rock in the ground. It's bedrock. It's a large, massive structure of rock as compared to a Petros, which is a stone. Yet upon this bedrock shall I build my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
The Catholics scoff at the distinction between Petra and Petros and use Peter in these words in their desire to foist their Mafia Don pulp cult upon us. However, the distinction cannot honestly be ignored. Christ told Peter that he was a stone, but that he, Christ himself, would build his congregation upon bedrock. Here, Peter Peter himself tells us that each Israelite Christian submitting himself to Christ is a stone, and that Christ himself is the chosen cornerstone. And Peter uses the same word, not Petrus, but Lethus, to describe both Christ and each one of those Israelites in this passage. Altogether, we have the real church, which is the true body of Christ, Christ himself being the head, and each Israelite Christian being a stone in the building. While Peter used the word lithos here rather than petrus, the distinction is purposeful, but not in the way that a Catholic would like to assume. A petrus was a common stone, such as one found anywhere on the ground, but the word lithos from which we actually do get the word lithography and and similar words. The word lithos was used of a stone which was employed in building, a stone of marble or a precious stone. Although it is in some cases a synonym for petrus, lithos was also often used of blocks of hewn stone. Lithos was also the word used by the Apostle John, where he described the city of God in Revelation 21:19, where he said, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The children of Israel are those foundations. The children of Israel themselves are the city of God. Paul uses very similar language in Ephesians 2:19 through 22, where he says, So therefore you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets. In other words, they were no longer sojourners. They were no longer taken, that they were no longer estranged from God. They were being welcomed back into the fold through the propitiation in Christ. Being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, Yahshua Christ being the cornerstone himself, in whom the whole building, all of the children of Israel who are accepting of Christ, are welcomed to be stones in that building coming forth, as Peter says, to Christ, in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple with the prince, or with the Lord, in which you also are being built together into an abode of Yahweh in the Spirit. The spiritual sacrifices which Peter mentions are those good deeds which we do for our brethren. Paul often spoke of this same thing, 
and I will compare 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, where Paul says, To those who are wealthy in this present age, you exhort neither to be high-minded nor to have hope in uncertain riches, but in Yahweh, who provides for us richly all things for enjoyment, to do good work, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, sharing, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future in order that they would obtain the true life, in order that they would have a reward in that life. And to Timothy 3:16 and 17, all writing inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education which is in righteousness, that the man of Yahweh would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works. If we learn the gospel through the scriptures, we seek to act on that knowledge. Likewise, James, in the second chapter of his epistle, says, What is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith but does not have works? Is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking in daily food, and one from among you should say to them, Go in peace, be warm and fed. But you would not give to them the provisions for the body. What is the benefit? Thusly also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. Peter told us in the first verse of this chapter that if we yearn for the pure rational milk, that by it you would grow into preservation. Once we learn to care for our kindred, and put away the selfish and uncaring ways of the flesh, we ensure our preservation as a people. If we could only do that, the enemies of God would have no power over us. To repeat verse 6, Wherefore it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I place in Zion an honored elect cornerstone, and he believing in him shall by no means be ashamed. The scriptures Peter talks about are those of the Old Testament. This saying is first found in Psalm 118, verse 22, and then it's found in Isaiah 28:16. It is also attributed to, the, to, to, be, to having been said, to having been uttered by Christ himself three times in the Gospels, where he quotes it in reference to himself, and it is referred to in Acts 4.11, and by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 2, all in reference to Christ. It's one of the most repeated concepts in all of Scripture. Verse 7, Therefore the honor for you is for those who believe. But they who do not believe, and they don't have a choice, as Peter as Peter will tell us. The stone which the builders have rejected, this has come to be for the head cornerstone, and a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They stumble, disobeying the word, for which also they have been ordained. Of course, God knew that the Edomites and the Canaanites were going to reject the Christ. We stumble rejecting God. We rejected God ourselves 
following the ways of the other nations, following the ways of the Canaanites, just like many true Israelite Judeans followed the ways of the Edomites during the ministry of Christ. Just like many true white people today, Israelites or descendants of Adam at least, have rejected God and Christ. And who are they following? They're following the humanism, the false religions, and the false science offered up by the Jews. Our people rejected God long ago. 1 Samuel 8-7. Yahweh was our king. From the time of the Exodus, through the time of the judges, our nation, our fathers, lived under a theocracy. 1 Samuel 8-7. And Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The image of the builders, the stone which the builders have rejected, of course, that doesn't refer to the Edomites. The image of the builders is used analogously as an analogy of those early leaders of Israel who first rejected God as their king. In Revelation chapters 19 through 22, we see that at the end of days, Yahweh will indeed rule over us again through Yahshua Christ. The story of the Bible is the story of a return to theocracy. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 15 through 19. Because you have said, of course the children of Israel are the subject, right? Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood we have hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and the righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you, for morning by morning shall it overpass, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. Rejecting our God, our fathers made a covenant with death. Through Christ, that covenant with death is disannulled, meaning it is canceled. The overflowing scourge, in the form of the humanist gods of diversity, multiculturalism, and all the other false ideologies which destroy our people, it is passing through now. And we are indeed being trodden down by it. Certainly it is a vexation. It is a vexation only to understand the report because it is a source of grief once your eyes are opened to what is happening to our people today. The stone-laden Zion is Christ. 
our rock. In reference to that stone-laden Zion, repeating verse 6, Peter says, concerning those of his own time who have stumbled upon it once it was laid, which is those who have rejected Christ in his day, that they stumbled disobeying the word for which also they have been ordained. Isaiah chapter 53.3, he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. The apostles fled when he was arrested, right? As he told them they would do. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The gospel already separated the wheat from the tares. We just don't get it. And like fools, we, have, we keep trying to convert the tares. These are the vessels of destruction of Romans chapter 9, the children of Esau. As they were ordained to reject Christ. It was planned that way from the beginning. As compared to the vessels of mercy of Romans chapter 9, which are the children of Israel. Why, if Joshua Christ himself could not do it, had men insisted ever since that time that they could convert the tares? And they still do not understand the nature of the tares, although they have always failed to convert them. Today those tares are among us once again because we never understood these things. And now only God himself can possibly rid us of them. And he will do so indeed. That is the Christian promise. Verse 9. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peter's talking to Christians. So that you should proclaim the virtues from which, out of darkness, you have been called into the wonder of his light. He's talking to Christians. No Christian, no Christian of Judea who converted to Christianity was ever again reckoned as a Judean. As Paul says, they were all made one in Christ. The true Israelite Judeans who accepted Christianity lost their identity as Judeans. They were never known as Jews. Here Peter, as we have demonstrated, is talking not even to them. He is talking to the earlier dispersions of Israel. The word genos here must be race. Since the words which follow, in other words, it can't be generation, right? Because the words which follow, nation, priesthood, and people, cannot be reduced to a single point in time. Therefore, understanding the word genos as a mere generation is out of context. Rather, they are an elect race. The allusion is to Leviticus 19, verses 5 and 6. That is the only valid context. I'm sorry, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. At Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Yahweh said to Israel, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, 
and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy meaning, meaning separate and devoted to the purposes of God. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Psalm 135.4 For Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. The universalists might see an opening here and claim that Israel was not obedient as they agreed to be in Exodus 19. However, the stated purpose of the new covenant in Christ is not to let others in because of Israel's disobedience. Rather, it is to bring cast-off Israel into obedience. That's the purpose of the new covenant. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, not to bring aliens to Christ, to bring Israel to Christ. Thus, Paul says to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians had indeed descended from ancient Israelites, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and as can be proven historically. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience once your obedience, the children of Israel, once your obedience is fulfilled. The aged Simeon who was told that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Upon seeing the Christ child in the temple in Jerusalem, exclaimed, Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word, because mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and the honor of your people Israel. Luke 2, 29-32. This light for the revelation of the nations is the light which Peter references. For the revelation of the children of Israel, those who were not his people, but are now called the sons of the living God. And here Peter quotes Hosea in verse 10. Who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of God, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. Direct reference to Hosea 1.10. These words of Peter's could not refer to Jews. They could not refer to alien Gentiles. And they could not refer to the 70 weeks kingdom set up by the 42,000 or so people who returned out of the Babylonian captivity in the days 
of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. These words can't refer to any of those groups. These words from Hosea can only refer to those Israelites of the Assyrian deportations and earlier, and the Greeks and the Celts of the assemblies to which Peter is writing are indeed descended from those Israelites. If we look back at the people who, who Peter addressed this epistle to, the people of Pontus, the people of Asia, the, the people of the other districts of western Anatolia, they were for the most part Greeks and Celts. The apostles did not quote the Old Testament because it is full of cool stuff to, to say. The apostles quoted the Old Testament because they were explaining the fulfillment of prophecy to the very people who were the objects of that prophecy. That's why they were quoting it. They didn't quote it because it gave them some good things to write. They were quoting it because they were explaining to these people who were the objects of the prophecy that they had fulfilled it and they would fulfill it by returning to Christ. This passage in Hosea 1.10, which Peter quotes here, is stated of Israel alone. And Paul also quoted it in Romans chapter 9, verse 26. And Paul also was speaking of dispersed Israel and nobody else. And the Romans were indeed descended from Israelites of a much earlier dispersion. And here Peter means only dispersed Israel. Because the words in Hosea cannot possibly apply to anybody else. Verse 11. Beloved, I exhort as emigrants. Parapidemos is the word. It means somebody who leaves their homeland and goes and dwells in another land. That's what an emigrant is. It's not a stranger here. Beloved, and, and that also is fully descriptive of the children of Israel who were cast out of Yahweh's presence. They were cast out of the presence of God and settled in Europe. Beloved, I exhort, as emigrants and sojourners, that you abstain from fleshly desires which make war against the soul. Here, again, we see Peter's audience, Peter's readers, linked to the Old Testament Israelites. And these are the scattered sojourners whom Peter is addressing. Paul also described our struggle to overcome the lusts of the flesh at Galatians 5.17, where he says, the flesh desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Indeed, these are in opposition to one another. In which case, you should not do these things that you desire. The flesh is weak, and the adversary, the Jew and his minions, understand that very well. Therefore, they are found everywhere, pandering to those weaknesses and deceiving our brethren who are in the world with every sort of vice and perversion. 
We have given way to these panderers ever since Genesis chapter 3, over and over again. Verse 12. Holding your conduct well among the heathens, in order that while they slander you as evildoers, watching from the good works, they may honor God on the day of visitation. I read the word ethnos here as intending those people of the Adamic nations who have not accepted the gospel. And so I have translated it, heathens. They haven't accepted the gospel by this point in time, at least. Considering that only a small percentage of the people had accepted the gospel and had even heard the gospel by Peter's time, by the time he's writing this epistle. Paul uses the word, and and I'm sorry, I should say without bias, but without this bias, ethnos should probably be rendered as peoples here. Paul uses the word in the same sense in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, fornication is generally reported among you, and fornication so bad that such is not even among the heathens, or peoples, or nations, for one to have his father's wife. Paul uses the term again in the same manner in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse 26. While the word properly means nations in the plural, or peoples in the sense of diverse ethnic groups, it seems to be used at times in a manner which refers to the ungodly practices or conduct of non-Christian nations, regardless of their ethnicity, and not merely to the nations themselves, And so it is here and in these other cases, which I have cited in Paul's letters, where I have rendered it as heathens. The word never means non-Jews. Holding your conduct well among the heathens in order that while they slander you as evildoers, watching from the good works, they may honor Yahweh on the day of visitation. Verse 13. You must be obedient to every authority created by mankind. There's a lot of Christian identists who don't like this one. You must be obedient to every authority created by mankind on account of the prince or the Lord, whether to kings as if being superior or to governors as if being sent by him for the punishment of evildoers but for the praise of those doing good. Because thusly is the will of Yahweh, doing good to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men, as free men, yet not as if having freedom for a cover for evil, but as servants of Yahweh. Many people, especially in Christian Israel identity, steadfastly refuse to accept this precept, putting the flesh before the spirit, we have to consider ourselves, we have to consider our lives within the context of all history and scripture as part of the big picture and not be so concerned about our own personal well-being and our own personal sense of justice. This life is about trials, as we saw here in this very epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Here we have an absolute corroboration of Romans chapter 13. And the Paul bashers scoffing against Paul are in reality rebelling against the decrees of God if they only understood the prophets. At John chapter 19, verse 11, Christ said to Pilate that thou could have no power at all against me unless it were given you from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. We should deal with governmental authorities with that same attitude unless we feel that we are better than our Redeemer. Today, our kingdom is handed over to the beast. That's where we are on the prophetic scale. Revelation 17, 17. Our kingdom is handed over to those true engineers of mystery Babylon. But while God foresaw it, it is clearly our own fault. We accepted, as a people, we accepted all of the sin that got us to this point. When we sin, God knows we're going to sin. He knows ahead of time. He knew Esau was going to be a race mixer from the day, well, well from, from the day that he created the universe, right? From a time long before Esau was born. However, when we sin, that's not God's fault. We are agreeing to that sin. He just, being God, can't help but know ahead of time which path we're going to take. At Revelation 13.4, we see these words spoken, the truth of which are fully evident as we observe the world around us today, where it says, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? We must learn as a people that Yahweh our God is sovereign, and that no power rules over men outside of his will. He revealed to the prophet Daniel that the beast would rule wheresoever the children of Adam dwell in Daniel chapter 2, speaking of ancient Babylon. Therefore, we see these words in the book of Jeremiah, and I quote from Jeremiah 21. The word which came unto Jeremiah from Yahweh when King Zedekiah sent, him unto, sent unto him Pasher the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah the son of Maasiah, the priest, saying, Enquire, I pray thee, of Yahweh for us. For the book of Drezar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. If so be that Yahweh will deal with us according to all his wondrous works, that he may go up from us. Then said Jeremiah unto them, This you shall say to Zedekiah. Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands wherewith you fight against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, which besiege you outside the walls. And I will assemble them into the midst of the city. And I myself will fight against you. This is Yahweh telling the king of Judah that he's going to fight on the side of the Babylonians, allegorically. And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will smite the inhabitants of this city, 
both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterward, saith Yahweh, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, and such as are left of the city from the pestilence, from the sword, and from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life. And he shall smite them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, neither have pity, nor have mercy. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He that abides in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goes out and falls to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against this city for evil and not for good, saith Yahweh. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Jeremiah 38, 17 and 18. Then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if thou wilt assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes to surrender himself, then thy soul shall live. And this city shall not be burned with fire, and thou shalt live in thine house. But if thou wilt not go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand. Yahweh wanted the children of Judah to submit to the captivity of the Babylonians, he told them that if they did, they would live. He didn't want them to resist and to die. And he warned them that if they resisted that captivity, they would die. It's only common sense that if our kingdom is handed over to the beast, we should accept our punishment and accept this trial from God, and it would be foolish to fight against the beast. The beast will rule until the time when he decrees that its rule come to an end. We have a Christian promise that its rule will come to an end. He will be king of kings, but it's his battle. It's not our battle until the day that he calls us to it. Micah chapter 4 Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. In the meantime, it would be better, and I'll probably repeat this, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, so that we have the ability to give to God what is God's. While Yahweh's commandments are first, and we are not to violate them, even unto death, we are not to violate the commandments of God. And the Christian martyrs are the primary example of that. If we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, then we will be able to render to Yahweh what is his. And striving to do that which is good, we pray that Caesar will leave us alone. Doing that, seeking Yahweh's will, perhaps we will not be judged harshly. We may be poor, but Christians are not supposed to be wealthy. In fact, 
James, in chapter 5 of his epistle, even warns the wealthy that they, simply by the fact that they are wealthy, are being disobedient to Yahweh. The bottom line is this. This life is a trial, and Yahweh chooses whether or how each of us is tried. Some of us will suffer the judgments of those around us. As I have translated Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, if one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. There's no avoiding it. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. This is the patience and the faith of the saints. Remember that our time of punishment as a people was more or less sealed when our ancestors rejected the Israelite theocracy of God and demanded an earthly king. By the time all of this is over, we will be begging to have Yahweh our God back as our king. We are now, many of us. That is a major overall theme of the Bible, clouded because of false doctrines, where people do not really know what it means to see that in the end, Yahshua Christ certainly shall be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the return of Yahweh's theocracy to Israel. In the meantime, we will suffer the will of our ancestors, and we are oppressed by earthly kings. And as long as we are a sinful people, we will never have a righteous ruler. Expect to be punished even more because it is the natural outcome of our sinful behavior. Repeating 1 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, you must be obedient to every authority created by mankind on account of the prince, whether the king's is its superior or the governor's, as if being sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. And, and the more sinful our people are, the worse our rulers get. Look at this clown in the White House now. But for the praise of those doing good, because thusly is the will of Yahweh doing good to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men, as free men, yet not as if having freedom or liberty from the judgments of the law, right? But not as if having freedom for a cover for evil, but rather as servants of Yahweh. Paul, Paul's words at Romans 13, are exactly in line with Peter's words on this subject. And I quote, Every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities, since there is no authority except from Yahweh. Then those who are, those who are authorities, by Yahweh are they appointed. Remember, he told Pharaoh that he raised him up so that he could destroy him. Consequently, one opposing the authority has opposed the ordinance of Yahweh, and they who are in opposition will themselves receive judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil, and usually that is the case. Now do you desire to not be fearful of the authority? Practice good, and you will have approval from it. A servant of God is for you for good. But if you practice evil, be fearful, 
For not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of God is an avenger with wrath to he who has practiced evil. Yahweh brings our enemies upon us when we practice evil. That's the lesson of the Old Testament and the New. On which account, to be subordinate is a necessity, not only because of indignation, the wrath of God, but also because of conscience. We should want to seek his will. For this reason also you pay tribute. They are ministers of Yahweh, obstinately persisting in this same thing. Therefore, render to all debts, to whom tribute, tribute, to whom taxes, taxes, to whom reverence, reverence, to whom dignity, dignity. You owe no one to anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. In other words, we don't obey worldly governments if it requires us breaking the commandments of God. That's where we draw the line. You shall not lust, and any other commandment is summarized in this saying. To wit, you shall love him near to you. You shall love your racial kinsmen as yourself. Remember, your neighbor has to be one of the sheep. By the definition of the word, your neighbor has to be one of the sheep. Love for him near to you, your brethren, who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. If your brother is doing evil, you don't have an obligation to love him. You put him out from your company and pray that God judges him, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Likewise, seeing the time, that hour we are all ready to be aroused out of sleep, for now is nearer to our deliverance than when we had believed. Of course, Paul taught that the second coming of Christ was imminent, was imminent because... Christians are always supposed to act as if it is. The night is advanced, the day is drawn near, therefore we must put away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, as in the day we shall walk honorably, and not in revelry and drunkenness, and not in lasciviousness and licentiousness, and not in strife and jealousy. Rather, put on Prince Yahshua Christ and do not fashion for lust provision of the flesh. Verse 17, you must honor all, love the brotherhood, dear Yahweh, honor the king, not necessarily the Roman emperor, right? Love the brotherhood, love your fellow kinsmen, honor the king. The king in this instance is Yahshua Christ. Peter talking from the perspective that his kingship is indeed certain. Servants, Subject yourselves with all fear to the masters, not only to the good and reasonable, but also to the crooked. For this is a benefit. If, through, conscious, through consciousness of Yahweh, one endures suffering grief unrighteously. Slavery was an accepted fact of life at the time of Christ. Today we have it. We have corporate wage slavery today. It is not much different than Roman and Greek estate slavery. And just like no government has authority over the will of man outside of the purview of Yahweh, no man is a slave 
outside of the purview and the permissive will of God. Revelation 13.10 is one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. When we suffer loss and we account it for nothing, we demonstrate a faithful expectation in the justice of God and in his reward in the world to come. For that reason, Paul told the Hebrews at 11.34, For you also sympathized with the prisoners, and you accepted the seizure of your possessions with joy, knowing to have and awaiting a better possession yourselves. From the Septuagint, Proverbs 12.28, In the ways of righteousness is life, but the ways of those that remember injuries lead to death. Proverbs 17.9, he that conceals injuries seeks love, but he that hates to hide them separates friends and kindred. Concerning slavery, Paul fully agrees with Peter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, bondmen obey fleshly masters with fear and trembling, in the simplicity of your heart as with Christ not with lip service as men-pleasers, but as bondmen of Christ, doing the will of Yahweh from the soul. If you're a slave, Yahweh's ordained it. That's just the way it is. Good, with goodwill, doing service as if to the prince and not to man. Do your service well and imagine yourself to be serving Christ. Knowing that whatever good each may have done this he will recover for himself as appropriate, whether bondman or free. Your recompense is in heaven. Your recompense for suffering in this world is in the world to come. That's part of the Christian faith. Verse 20. For what sort of report, if doing wrong and being beaten, will you submit? But if doing good and suffering you submit, this is a benefit before God. How can you complain about being beaten before your judge if you were beaten for wrongdoing? Mark 13, 9, the words of Christ, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony against them. Doing good if you suffer, it's a testimony against those who persecute you. Verse 21. Indeed, for this you have been called, because Christ also had suffered on your behalf, leaving behind for you an example, in order that you would follow in his footsteps, who had not committed wrong, nor had guile been found in his mouth, who being abused had not abused in return, Suffering had not made threats, but surrendered to him, surrendered to the will of God, judging righteously. Surrendered to him who judges righteously. This is also an example for us today. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 49. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, 
and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomever, whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it already be kindled? What will I do if it's already burning? One Peter two twenty four, who himself carried your errors on his body upon the cross, that the errors or sins being taken away, we should live in righteousness, by whose wounds you are healed. For you were as sheep wandering astray, but you must return now, return now, important words, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These verses are straight from Isaiah chapter 53. Except for Peter's own modification of a part of Isaiah 53.6, where he modifies it into the warning which he issues in verse 25, and we shall discuss that shortly. First, it may be fitting to discuss the book of Isaiah in brief. Many critics claim that the last 25 chapters of Isaiah were written by some different Isaiah, and they do not belong to the original Isaiah. They want to claim that they were written much later than the original Isaiah wrote. That is Jewish treachery and a lie. Because once the prophecy of Isaiah is examined in depth, the identification of the Jews with Israel cannot stand. Therefore, Jews and many foolish Christians seek to demean the book and to diminish it. Many Jews and other scoffers also seek to discredit the predictive quality of the prophecies in Isaiah. However, neither do those criticisms stand upon examination. There were two witnesses that Isaiah is a singular book written by a singular author. The first witness is the wisdom of Sirach known historically and without doubt to exist from the 3rd century before Christ. Sirach, chapter 48, verses 24 forward, I'm not going to quote them, discusses Isaiah and his mission in the days of Hezekiah the king and the nature of his prophecies. The next witness is the gospel, where Isaiah is often mentioned. In Luke chapter 4, however, There is a very strong attestation of these last chapters of Isaiah, where Christ, in an assembly hall in Nazareth, is said to have stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah, was handed over to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And then Christ proceeds, as described in Luke chapter 4, to read portions of Scripture found in Isaiah chapters 58 and 61. There should be no doubt in the Christian mind as to the authenticity and the unity 
of the book of Isaiah. I will read Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53 is a clear messianic prophecy. And there is much more to it than these six verses. It has already been demonstrated here that among other things, Peter, by quoting Hosea in reference to his intended audience, must have been addressing Israelites but could not have been referring to the people of Judea who descended from the returnees of the Babylonian captivity. Here, this reference to Isaiah chapter 53 again proves that Peter was talking to the people of the earlier dispersions of Israel, because the last 25 chapters of Isaiah refer only to those people, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The meaning of Isaiah chapter 53 is that there would be an innocent man who would suffer undeservedly as a propitiation for the sins of the people of Israel. It cannot apply to anyone but the children of Israel, which is the entire context of the prophecy. Isaiah 41, verses 1 and 2, shows that this part of Isaiah's prophecy is written to the people of the Mediterranean coasts, and from there on it is fully evident that it is, throughout the last 25 chapters. It says in Isaiah 41.1, Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword, and has driven stubble to his bow. Isaiah 42, 1-8, another part of a different messianic prophecy, shows the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his seed would become many nations in the bearing of the message of salvation to the nations of Israel, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the nations. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto the truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles 
shall wait for his law. Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, and he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the nations to open the blind eyes and bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house, the allegorical captivity which the children of Israel would be in. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The covenants are for Israel, and the captives are those Israelites formerly dispossessed by God, which was the theme of the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. Here we're speaking to Israel in captivity and Israel alone. Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. None of these words in these chapters of Isaiah can be imagined to ever apply to anyone else but the people of Israel. Isaiah 66, 19. And I will set a sign among them, among the Israelites. And I will send those that escape of them. I will send those who escape of the captivity taken away by the Assyrians. That's the context of Isaiah 66. And I will send those that escape of them, captive Israel, unto the nations, to Tarshish, Spain, Pole, Assyria, and Lud. Lud is Lydia and Etruria, Lydia in Anatolia, and Etruria, the land of the Etruscans, who by all accounts descended from the Lydians. To Tubal, Tubal lived on the Black Sea. And Javan, Javan was Ionia, the Ionian Greeks. To the isles afar off, that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Not two hundred years, after the Assyrian deportations in the time of Isaiah's writing, the Celts and the Saxons, the Cimmerians and the Sacae or the Scythians, appeared in all of the places where Isaiah tells us that the children of Israel were going to be sent. Christian identity is the only true Christianity. Now to repeat 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, who himself carried your errors on his body upon the cross, that the errors being taken away, we should live in righteousness. Peter has to be talking to Israel and nobody else. By whose wounds you are healed as a nation, as a people. For you were as sheep wandering astray, but you must now return to the shepherd. and overseer of your souls. Compare this last passage again to Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah is talking to the Israelites of the dispersion in the isles, in the coastlands of Europe. 
For you were a sheep wandering astray, but you must now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, Peter says. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all, meaning on the Christ. Here Peter is again telling us that his message is exclusively for those cast-off children of Israel. It is fitting to repeat this once more in comparison. Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Peter, for you are a sheep wandering astray, but you must now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is admonishing his readers to return to their God, which Peter quoted also from Hosea. Therefore, he must only be addressing Israelites. These words cannot apply to anyone else. And these are called the Catholic epistles. What a misnomer that is. These epistles are very specific. They are anything but general. They are anything but universal, as the word Catholic is misused. This statement is also a refutation of humanism. Because here it is evident, as it often is in the Bible, that we are not the captains of our own souls, as we so often suppose. In some of the materials of the Paul Bashers, which I have addressed in the past, Henry Graeber actually insisted that he was the captain of his own soul, while he was hypocritically quoting a different chapter in Peter. It was also claimed that Timothy McVeigh was a Christian, even a Christian identity adherent, and he was found with a copy of this poem, Invictus, by William Ernst Henley. And Henley's poem became quite famous for a few minutes in the media when McVeigh was arrested for the Oklahoma City bombing. If you know the New Testament and you read the poem, you may find that it sounds nice, but it is really a humanist piece of trash. And McVeigh was probably not a Christian. The poem exclaims, I am the captain of my soul. That is humanism. Christian ha Christians have to realize that Yahweh God alone is the captain, the shepherd of our souls. Christians have to realize that God has a greater purpose than their own immediate desires for comfort and temporal gratification. Seeking his will now, we shall perhaps earn a greater reward for ourselves later. Thank you for being here tonight. I'll be here next week from the suburbs of Philadelphia presenting 1 Peter chapter 3. And, and it, if I get to 4 and 5, I get to 4 and 5. Tomorrow, I'll be here with ProThink, Mike Delaney. And tomorrow, we're going to talk about something a little different. We, we, we might have some fun. Well, we're going to talk about media bias in the reporting of Negro crime. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for being here. Good night.